Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. My name is Jeff Norwood-Brown. The other day, looking out the window, I noticed a jet going by incredibly fast towards the south coast. I looked the aircraft up on an app, because of course I did. It was travelling 546 miles an hour, which is pretty fast for a passenger jet. So I knew it must have been in the jet stream, and that jet stream must be flowing north-south across the UK that day. And I only knew this because of my work at the Met Office, and that got me thinking... What weird facts do me and my colleagues know because of where we work? Joining me today are custodian of weather history and archivist who doesn't like snakes. It's India, uh, sorry, Catherine Ross. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> Operational meteorologist, seafarer and extreme weather advisor, Penny Tranter. Hello there, Jeff. And broadcaster, meteorologist and innovator of products, Helen Roberts. Hi, Jeff. We've all been challenged to bring to the table several weird facts we think you may not know. So let's start with witchcraft. Catherine. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. So, did you know that weather forecasting was outlawed as a form of witchcraft and sorcery by Henry VIII? That's because it involved looking into the future. What the weather might do was one thing, but if you could do that, you might also be able to look into the future of the king. That was a rather less popular idea. Uh, what's slightly more interesting is that the Witchcraft Act wasn't fully repealed until 1951. <laughs> The Met Office was founded in 1854, <laughs> and I'll let you do the maths. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think the last witchcraft trial was in the 1950s. <laughs> maybe it was a forecaster. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, well, yes, I could imagine it would be. Um, but yeah, and, and one of the facts I've got as well is that um, up until very recently, we used crystal balls um, to, um, to do the forecast in the form of Campbell Stokes. Sunshine recorders? Oh, Does anybody yeah. remember a Campbell Stokes? So we is... still have them come into the archive. They're still in use. They're still around, yep. yes. Yeah. So much sought after, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> but these are uh, just look like a crystal ball in a cradle, uh, which would focus the sunlight as it travelled around the sky, burning a, um, a piece of cardboard. And then you could take the cardboard out at the end of the day and then count how many hours of sunshine we had. A um, little bit more sophisticated, but not as elegant these days. And we just use a electronic equipment to measure sunshine but that's how it um that's how it was done for, for quite some time i still remember that lovely smell of the of, of the, the slightly charred cardboard, charred cardboard. <laughs> yeah <laughs> counting up how many hours they'd been I, I i thought they were absolutely fantastic bits of kit until they i are. tried to get the cardboard out one very very rainy night in the falkland islands <laughs> ah. when it was blowing a gale and uh yes it was absolutely it was just falling apart in my hands you know so uh, <laughs> fortunately there wasn't much sun to count that day <laughs> the other mysterious um, uh, thing I've got is a Brocken Spectre. Are we all mm. familiar with a Brocken Spectre? Mm, yeah. So this is um, an image that you can see. Um, when you've got fog or low cloud around, it's, it's similar to a glory that you might see uh, from an aircraft, which is looks like a, a, like a small circular rainbow around the shadow of the aircraft that you're in. But the Brocken Spectre is something that walkers quite often see. And it's a, their own shadow. Um, projected onto the fog or cloud bank or, or whatever. And it looks enormous and has a halo around it as well. So that's, um, yeah, it comes from, uh, Brocken, I think, is a mountain in uh, Germany, which is where they used to see, they used to have the right conditions all the time um, for these. But uh, Brocken Spectre is... They, they can look really quite eerie, can't they? Yeah. Have you ever seen one? I haven't. No, no, no. I don't often go walking up mountains, to be honest with you. So, uh... <laughs> I go walking up mountains, but not in the fog. So I've yet to see one. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, we need to obviously need the sun behind you yes. to project it. But apparently, 
your your brain can't quite work out what it is, so it looks enormous and imposing your own shadow, you know. So, uh, um, so yeah, so Brock and Spectres uh, are a very curious name for um, what would you call it? A meteorological event? Phenomenon. A phenomenon. A phenomenon. <laughs> yes, a meteorological phenomenon. Gosh, there's a lot of syllables in that. Um, so, which leads us on to weird names of things, Penny. Did you have one on uh, dog days? Uh, yes, I did. Um, you may have heard of dog days, particularly in the summer. I don't know if you've heard of mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Do you know what they are? I don't. No. It's dog day after doing the um, film, isn't it? No, no, I don't think it's got anything to do with the film, although I haven't seen the film. Right. So no, I've read it in, in books. It's from the Latin, and I'm not going to pronounce the Latin because I'm not very good at languages, but it literally was translated into English as puppy or dog days. Um, And it actually came from the Greeks who knew that there was a star called the Canis Majoris. Mm -hmm. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Yeah. Which included um, Sirius, Mm -hmm. the scorcher, um, and also the dog star. Yeah. So um, the last name reflects the way Sirius follows the constellation Orion into the night sky. Sirius is by far the brightest proper star in the night sky. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, you can always pick it out, can't yes. you, on a clear night? Yeah. Oh, there's Sirius. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, along with, you know, several planets and mm. things like that. Um, but it caused ancient astronomers in Greece to take note of it um, around the world, including Greece. So in Egypt, its return to the night sky became known as a precursor to the annual flooding of the Nile and was worshipped as the goddess Sopdet. But it also became known as the precursor of the unpleasantly hot phase of the summer. So when we talk about dog days of the summer here in the UK, we're referring to those really oppressive, Mm. sultry, humid days that we get at the height of the summer right Mm. and we might get you know sort of a a few of them before we have the classical thundery breakdown that happens with the spanish plume which um obviously comes in from the south Mm. so that's where the um phrase dog days actually originates from right so it's nothing to do with wilting dogs or anything like that no although Although i don't like hot weather so i guess they would wilt (laughs) No, it, it, originally it didn't, mm. but I do think, you know, you probably will see some dogs yeah, sort of lying there panting. panting. And yeah, it, it, it reminds me of uh, Indian summer, which we've touched on before now. We have, um, yeah. And I always thought it referred to the subcontinent, you know, and I can feel producer Claire's eyes boring into me now. Uh, so I will mention that an Indian summer is uh, a sudden return to heat after the first frost, there we go. I've got a thumbs up. Um, so I had learned something, but it actually comes from um, North America, and it's uh, it should really be uh, you know Native American summer and not Indian summer. But yeah, so that's a misnomer um, that uh, yeah I was corrected on a few years ago. Anybody got any animal facts at all? Oh, I can do animals. Go on, <laughs> except for snakes, maybe. <laughs> go on, Indy. So one of them might be. Um, Ships captains used to make detailed logs of their voyages around the world. Um, and until about the mid-1800s, they, they weren't used for anything. They just got put into rooms and stored there. Um, 
And then it was around about the 1840s. It was actually, you know, the, the first meteorologists, although not necessarily known by that name, started thinking, well, actually, if we gathered all the information in these logs together, we could start working out what goes on in patterns around the, the oceans. Um, they were mostly looking for sort of climatology, what, you know, how strong is the current, which way is the wind blowing, can we find the trade winds, that kind of thing. But what they also found was that most of those captains also made a note of the birds and the animals and the other sort of things they saw. And they saw whales and they made a note of the whales. And they would find that at certain times of the year, the whales were all found in the southern Atlantic and other times they were all found up near the Arctic. And they suddenly realised that whales were a migratory species, which they'd never known before then because nobody had ever put all of the information together. Interesting. An odd one on on weather and whales. I've got some some animal facts here. So um, has anyone heard about the the frozen iguanas in Florida falling out of trees? No. Yeah, so this was was a big thing in the news. Well, it has been a couple of times, I think most recently in January of this year. And actually the National Weather Service in, in America issued a warning that there may be falling iguanas from trees, but don't worry, they're not dead. And what happens is when it's particularly cold, um, they, they're, they're cold-blooded animals and they slow down to, to the extent that they become completely immobile and, and poor things do, do drop out of trees. But hopefully most of them are able to recover fairly well. And then there's another one um, on a similar theme, which is about cricket. So you can tell the temperature by counting the chirps of a cricket. And this is something I've only just recently discovered, and it's called Dolbeer's Law, named after Amos Dolbeer, who was an American physicist and inventor. And he published an article in 1897 called The Cricket as a Thermometer. And he came up with a a formula. Um, and if you want to work out the temperature in Celsius... I was going to say, the, are crickets Fahrenheit the, or Celsius? Yeah, well, originally they were Fahrenheit, but <laughs> we, we've done the conversion here. So, so <laughs> to work out the temperature in Celsius, it's the you count the number of chirps in a minute, you add 30, and then you divide by 7. Or if you're slightly less accurate, but a slightly easier version, is count the number of chirps in 8 seconds and add 5. So it, that gives it would you be a shame that a frozen iguana fell on a cricket. Just oh, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, that could well happen. Although, actually, I think the, the cricket maths works better at temperatures between about 5 and 30 Celsius. Right. And probably the iguanas are falling out of trees maybe slightly below that temperature. Right. So, okay. so yeah. we've got yeah, we've got a range of animals we can use there for uh, various temperatures. Are animals used for anything else? Oh, they used to be. They used to use leeches to predict the weather. Right, okay. Um, so, um, a, a, a very aptly named George Merriweather. I was going to say, uh-huh. how did they point at the weather map? Ah, well. <laughs> so, yes, the, the, the aptly named George Merriweather invented something called the leech barometer, otherwise known as the tempest prognosticator, um, in which he used 12 leeches, each of which I'm afraid was stuck in a glass bottle. Um, And the general idea was that as the pressure drops, the leeches climb the sides of the bottles and try and get out. Now, the bottle was stoppered, so they couldn't get out. But at the top, there was a sort of a tube with a hammer in it. And yeah, I know. It's not not a big hammer. You have to think in miniature here. No, it's not going where you think it's going, Jeff. But essentially, they would sort of 
knock a lever, which no, you pulled something else, moved something else, and rang a bell in the middle of this sort of ring of bottles, of, of bottles of leeches. Um, and the more leeches that climbed their bottles and rang their bells, the more likely there was to be a thunderstorm. Um, George Meriwether actually tried to sell this to the government as as a means of you know, putting a, a, you know, warnings out, you know, to, to put one at every port, and then they can go and listen to the leeches. Um, it didn't. Uh, well, I, I think the the slightly more pun laden version of saying that would be it didn't stick. Right. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> thunderstorms, anyone? Oh yes. Yeah. So uh, there are six. Sorry, seven hundred and sixty thunderstorms on Earth every hour. And actually, this is a a relatively recent scientific finding. Um, something we've been trying to calculate for for many many decades. But it was really only finally calculated in twenty eleven, apparently, mm. um, as a result of combining forty weather stations around the world that were equipped with machines able to detect the electromagnetic pulses produced by strong lightning bolts. So, um, yes, we finally have a number. I think at some point we thought it was um, quite a few more than that, actually. But still, 760 in an hour isn't isn't bad going. Are they mostly in one part of the world? Well, they're mostly in the tropics. Mm. Um, and interestingly, uh, where I read this fact, it says that they tend to occur um, mostly or rather the peak time is around noon GMT. So that's interesting yeah. because I wonder why that would be. You have to right. get some yeah. scientists together to think about why that might occur. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Because is it coming from observations or is it coming from satellite data? Yeah, so it seems like this is coming from, from actual ground-based observations, oh, right. but but presumably... I, I think the, the reason is because satellite data can perhaps show the lightning strikes as a whole, but not necessarily cloud to ground or cloud to cloud, different types of lightning strikes. Yeah, I, I mean, I read, I read an article, I think, uh, actually just this morning, that was saying that the next generation of satellite is going to be able to differentiate. Right. So we are going to get sort of extra information about lightning right. interesting maybe yes. maybe mostly where they should go out and uh, have a, an equatorial adventure and uh, find out <laughs> see the if storm we can get, get to the yes. bottom of this one um, anybody else with thunderstorms not particularly thunderstorms um but one that might be interesting is that um the first met office storm warnings were re- issued in 1861 right um and they were really very effective. Um, and in fact, they were so effective that the owners of the graving docks, now graving docks are where they used to bring damaged ships to have them repaired rather than building new ships. But the, so they, they was this, the storm warnings were so effective that the owners of the graving docks in Plymouth, where the damaged ships were taken for repair, um, actually complained about the loss of income because the storm warnings were so good right. that the ships weren't being damaged. Right. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> so has anybody else got any more storms? Penny, you're waving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I do indeed. Um, so here is a stunning UK fact find for you. Summer is the most thundery time of the year. Da, da, da. <laughs> so more thunderstorms occur during the summer than at any other time of the year. Do you know why? 
It's hotter. It's hotter. Heat. Yes. It's all to do with heat as the warmth of the summer sun provides the perfect conditions of rising air and moisture required for the creation of thunderstorms. And where are they most likely to occur in the UK? Southeast. Oh, <laughs> we say in tandem. Oh, that was wow. wonderful. Sure. Yes, East Midlands and Southeast England. So, so we can we can all remember. Well, just thinking back to July twenty twenty one when we mm. had that massive thundery um, event over London. Yeah, where we had I think it was over forty millimeters in an hour. Right, okay. and they had surface water flooding. And we were that was right on the edge of the um, low pressure system that brought all that devastating flooding yes. to Belgium, yes. the Netherlands, and Germany. So, is it was this part of a Spanish plume, which I think you mentioned earlier, or because did somebody want to go in and describe a Spanish plume? That would be nice. <laughs> the two forecasters look at each so, other in fear. Well, I'm, I'm happy to. I'm happy to. But, I, you know. So as far as I remember, this is a, a block of warm air that comes up from the Iberian Peninsula. Well, you've got, you've got, so you've got three levels up through the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So um, the first level is um, sort of very moist air, very warm air, generally sitting over the southern part of the UK. Right. And then you get some hotter, dry air, which mm-hmm. has been sat over the high sort of ground of central Spain. That comes up on a southerly wind. Right, so that moves over the... So that moves over rise. the very warm, moist air. And then you have, coming in from the west, normally with a cold front coming in from the Atlantic, you have much colder air in sort of the top half of the atmosphere. Right, okay. So when the very warm, moist air is warmed up... Mm. It, um, sort of under the which summer sun, which dry, is trapped dry, under okay. the hot, dry air. When that is warmed up and it breaks through that hot, dry air, because you've just got colder, moister air above it, it just goes bang, bang, mm. and you get those huge, towering um, cumulonimbus clouds. And then, and sometimes you get altocumulus castellanus. Oh, oh, that's really cool when you see that. Flocus. As well, um, and those result, you know, in those really magnificent, spectacular mm. thunderstorms, you know, which yeah. are just so intense, so torrential. Yeah, and of course, once once it's all passed through, you might end up with cirrus basaltus cumulonimbus. Of wow. course, well, yeah. Jeff, and so also now you're showing. Us. <laughs> <laughs> Would you also... like to translate that for us? <laughs> so that is that is the so the, there's a thing in the thunderstorm called the anvil, which is the highest point. It looks like the uh, yes. like a blacksmith's anvil and it's made of a very high cloud called cirrus um, and um, when it breaks off once the thunderstorm has died away you could be left with a very dense patch of cirrus uh, which is cirrus basatus cumulonimbus genesis so and he gets they, it in twice your fact was about thunderstorms being most common in summer yeah which i think may or may not surprise people but associated with thunderstorms is hail often isn't it yes and sometimes that really does take people by surprise in the summer because it's a frozen mm. precipitation yes but uh, and you're gonna ask me how hail is formed aren't you well do, do, do we know <laughs> do we know how hail is formed it's cloud condensation nuclei isn't it it's a, a small speck of dust or something that um, starts it all off and uh, water accumulates around the condensation nuclei yeah. 
Um, because of the extreme um, thermals within yeah. a... Um, updrafts. Yeah, updrafts mm. and downdrafts. And downdrafts. The water drop goes up through the freezing level and freezes into a small ice pellet and then comes back down into the liquid water. Um, I'm loving the diagram. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> comes back down and, and repeats that several times. Um, so if you ever cut a hailstone in Hong off, you'll see layers like an onion of... Uh, of uh, Evidence that it's been up and down through the, and it's only when it becomes too heavy for the updraft um, that it actually falls to the ground. And that's um, when you can get those absolutely enormous hailstorms, yeah, particularly the, in the states when the updrafts yeah. are incredibly strong. Mm. Yeah, mm. so if, you know, I mean, yeah, there's, there's lots of footage on YouTube of people's um, swimming pools and things, you know, being absolutely destroyed and, and mm. trees and that sort of thing. But even but in course, this country, you know, there was the ottery hailstorm yes. um, when. Yeah, it was just a, a, a very um, localized event with you know, with some decent sized hail, but an awful lot of it. And you look at the pictures; it's like snow it drift. It does yeah. really look yeah. like yeah. snow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It masquerades as snow, doesn't it? Yeah, in it the does. height of summer. Yeah. It does. Yeah, but um, yeah, and obviously, the stronger the updrafts, the bigger the hail can grow. So that's um, right. Yeah. And not only hail, but obviously, with the downdrafts, you can get huge microbursts. So microburst is where the air comes down with the hail. Um, and is in there and yep yeah, spreads out. Um, your miming is is, is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and, and yeah, this is a, a terrifically dangerous for aircraft mm. because uh, mm. even when they're trying to climb through a microburst, um, the air is coming down and it can come down so fast that no matter how much they pull back on the uh, the yoke, they are not going to climb. No. You know, so uh, and has been uh, the cause of a few accidents. But um, we're well aware of it these days. Yeah, so I think, you know, thunderstorms are, you know, they're, they're so well known, aren't they? Because mm. not only do you get heavy rain, you get hail, you get the very squally winds, possibly even microbursts. But, mm. you know, you could can also get tornadoes this over the true. land as yeah. well as water spouts over the sea. Yeah, but um, yeah, fascinating. We get to the whole episode there just on uh, <laughs> Just on that. And this is why aircraft um, don't fly through uh, thunderstorms unless you happen to work on a research aircraft and then you seem to head for them for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why, because it looks interesting. But of course, the other fact is that most rain starts as snow um, and just melts on the way down. And it's only in the winter when it fails to melt that you actually get snow on the ground. If it's cold enough, yes. Yeah, so... Yeah, because I, I guess it. you could assume it was the other way around, that most... Snow starts as rain and freezes on the way down, but that's not the case. Yeah, well, it can, it can do. It can do. Yeah, extreme examples. And I guess you could, then you can get freezing, freezing rain, which yeah. is very yeah. dangerous. And I think that's what ground pull is. It's isn't it? Fro it's rain that's frozen around a snowflake. Ground pull, yes. And then proper freezing rain is when it actually the rain falls as liquid water mm. but then freezes on impact with an extremely cold surface yeah. and that's when you get that black mm. ice yeah. yeah we had instances of it in beast mm. from the east a few yeah. years back and yeah. they get i think is it in i can't remember where it was now but it was somewhere in europe where, next to a lake where uh, the, the the wind comes off the lake and blows the uh, the lake water and it freezes yes. instantly yes. and it's like two foot thick on um um, on cars and things that are parked along the lakeside. You know, so uh, I, I remember we had some freezing rain here in Devon. What we did a, year, a couple of years ago. Yeah, that was like twenty eighteen. Because it was literally least, yeah. you know it was sheathed over my car, and it was mm. great fun trying to get into it. It's almost <laughs> impossible, isn't it, to do anything 
about it or with it. Yes, yeah. you just have to wait until it melts. Yeah. You really can't get through it. So, touching on snow, did we have a fact about snow? I've got a snow fact. Snow isn't actually white, would you believe? No. So, it's... <laughs> It's translucent. It very much appears white, and we, we even call it the white stuff. Um, but it, it's translucent, and the reason it appears white, as, as many of us will know, white light is when all light colours are combined. And so what happens in a snowflake, which has many sides and many surfaces, all the light is scattered in many, many directions, diffusing the entire colour spectrum, and it makes it appear white to the human eye. But, um, yeah, translucent Christmas maybe doesn't have quite the same oh, ring to it. No, it doesn't isn't, really, isn't does it? Isn't it true that polar bears are not, I was going to say polar bears yes. are translucent, but they're not. They're, their hair. Their, yeah, fur is translucent. And haven't they got black skin, or am I they making that They do have that black up? skin. Yes. That's to do with keeping them warmer. Yes. Yes. Yeah, was it? Oh, right, yeah. I did not know that. Mm. Um, the Arctic is named after the bear. Um, ah. The Latin for bear, and uh, so, yeah. Well, and that leads okay. me on nicely to my Antarctic fact, which is that it almost never rains or snows in Antarctica. Oh, it's, yeah. it's a desert, isn't it? It's a desert, that's right, yeah. Catherine. And it's actually one of the driest deserts in the world. So there's very rarely any precipitation there. But of course, when it does snow there, um, it, it doesn't melt. It stays there mm. and uh, then more snow falls and it compacts and, and then you get the ice that we're all very familiar with. But it, it takes us back to that perhaps fairly familiar old adage of it being too cold to snow. Mm. And that's kind of the reason why it doesn't in Antarctica, because you do need humidity to produce precipitation mm. and humidity needs some kind of heat. So that's why it's so, so rare that it snows. It's, it's not often that it's too cold to snow in the UK, though. So, um, <laughs> yeah, not quite so apt for us. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is the definition of a desert, isn't it? That um, it's, it's lack of precipitation rather than extreme. That's right, yes, I guess, because you're, you immediately think of sand, sand mm. dunes when you think of deserts. But yes, Antarctica is also a desert. Mm. I wonder if that's why the penguins went there. <laughs> It's better than the Arctic where the polar bears are. Yeah, they've got it made down there. <laughs> mm, tell that to the emperor penguin spending the winter there. I've got, I've got a penguin fact from the Falkland Islands. Excellent. Okay. And it's that they don't fall over when aircraft fly over them. Oh, so oh. This, was, this was a myth that was spread that you by... you experimented with. By, yes. <laughs> Me and the RAF, we spent many a time there. Um, yeah, this was a myth that was spread around by um, some scurrilous newspapers. Um, but uh, they, they were spent so much time watching the planes going over that they fell over backwards because they don't normally see that sort of thing. You know, but, but it's not true. Um, what is true is, uh, although they look um, very pretty, penguins, they stink. So that's, uh, <laughs> they are very smelly indeed when you get close to them. Well, do you think that they've got a fear of snow? Do you know what a fear of snow is called? Ooh, no. Know. no. Again, it originates from the Greeks. What do they know about snow? <laughs> they, had, they had snow they in had Athens, snow? didn't you they? <laughs> yes. When did they have snow in Athens? It was, um, was it last autumn? Yeah. Autumn 2021. 2021, yes. Um, well... So, did you know that there is a phobia of um, fear of snow? No, no. So you have the Greek word phobos mm. for fear, phobia yes. that we use, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh, 
kion, meaning snow. So it's kionophobia is the fear of snow, being afraid of snow. Didn't know that. No, that's new. So there you go. Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) When do you think we see snow most of all? Is it at Christmas or at Easter in the UK? I'd always... Well, it's not a Christmas, is it? Because Charles Dickens essentially invented the white Christmas and it didn't really happen. It was an unusual event when he wrote about it. Mm, Yeah. So you're more likely to see snow at Easter than at Christmas in the UK. Okay. But of course, Christmas Christmas (laughs) is always the 25th of December, but Easter is a movable feast. Um, So the earlier Easter happens you know, say in March or early April, (laughs) then yeah, you're more likely to see snow. But if if it's sort of, you know, like this year, what was it? I can't even remember. Mid-April. (laughs) Mid-April. Or even the end of April, you're more than likely not going to see snow. Right. I know that that we always tend to get hail just as the blossom comes out. Uh, um, yes. Yeah, and it strips all the blossoms off the trees. Strong winds, yeah. yeah yes, so. magno- if the magnolias are out, you can guarantee there'll be a gale within yeah. a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so snow is most common in January and February in the UK. Yeah, I know because my birthday's in February and I always associate my birthday with snow. So um, yeah, and that makes me happy. Mm. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> right, so quick fire round. <laughs> Who's got any remaining facts? And I can do now for something completely different. This is not about snow. Excellent. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, does it involve the Greeks? It's not about the Greeks oh, either. Okay. <laughs> Fire away. We are coming forwards in time. Um, so how about the fact that the first, the very first computer that the Met Office used for testing their numerical weather productions, this isn't to do with making the operational forecast. This is This is the early days. Let's test it. Let's see if we can do anything with a computer. Um, that computer belonged to the catering firm Lions, who were famous for their tea shops and cakes. Yes, Lions cakes, exactly, mm. cakes and biscuits. Um, now, Lions themselves were a very forward-thinking company, you know, in the 1950s. By thinking, now if we build a computer, we can put our accounts on it, and this is going to make us, you know, really effective. Now that's that's pretty good going. So the Met Office went, oh, can we borrow your computer to run some of our calculations on? And it meant that. As they started experimenting with producing forecasts, Lions could then use those weather forecasts to decide what they were going to send out in their fresh produce vans. Oh, So wow. the idea of sending, you know, of, of you know, the Met Office sort of forecast if affecting what supermarkets put on the shelves is nothing new. No, it's no. fantastic. But we still do that today, don't we? We, we still do. produce forecasts for, for retail and, you know, Explaining if it's going to be a, a hot barbecue mm-hmm. weekend or a one to get the soup in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, yeah, back in 1951, we started. Well, they started doing that with our forecasts, even if it was informally. So it's incredible. Yes. Just down the road from the Met Office is um, uh, one of these big warehouses that sells all sorts of um, stuff like barbecues and curtains and all that sort of thing. I won't name the name. Uh, and I wandered in there one day with my Met Office polo shirt on. That was uh, a mistake. And, and um, was looking at the barbecues, uh, only to find that the manager was behind me putting the prices up <laughs> as I wandered through. <laughs> so uh, I've got I've got 
I've got a fact for you. Buys ballot law. Who knows what buys ballot law is? Come on, forecasters. <laughs> Even the archivists heard of that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good, though. It's it is. So it's a brilliant, brilliant. Buying ballot law is really useful to know. Um, <laughs> well, not at all useful to know if you're a member of the public, really. But if you stand with your back to the wind in the Northern Hemisphere, the low pressure area is on your left. And the high pressure? Is on your right. right. Yeah. yeah, so that's useful for, for everybody. Who knows um, who buys ballot what? Well, his name, let's see. It's a, it's a double barrel surname, buys ballot. It's just one person. It's not like Rolls Royce, two people like I'd assume. He was christened Christophorus Henricus Didericus buys ballot. Wow. So, wow. yeah, I'm going to get have to get a few more names now to be... Yeah, yeah even yeah. more than you, Jeff. And that annoys the ends of them, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Jefficus. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Next fact. Oh, okay, I've got one. So, the total mass of the Earth's atmosphere is about 5.5 quadrillion tonnes, which sounds a lot, but it's roughly only one millionth of the Earth's mass. And if you have a normal size globe, then the atmosphere would be just two coats of varnish on top of wow. on top wow. of a desk. Only two desk coats, yeah. yeah, on a desk globe. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing, though. Yeah. So we're just sort of holding all that weight up. Aren't well, we? that's the thing. I mean, air is really quite surprisingly heavy. Mm. So at the moment, we've all got the weight of the atmosphere mm. weighing down on mm. us, and and the reason we don't feel it is because the atmosphere is fluid. And so you've got air pushing in all directions. So if you hold your hand out in front of you, you've got something like 10 bowling balls worth of, of weight of air pushing down on your palm. But, but equally, you've got air pushing in all directions. So it's a funny concept, isn't it, to mm, think of all that weight mm. around us? It's, and of course, we're designed to cope with that sort of that force to an extent. As yes. Well, yeah, yes. Because it's inside your body as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, but uh, yeah, it's like, um, although low pressure is associated with uh, inclement weather, um, the fact that you've got a few less tons of uh, atmosphere mm. on top of you when you wake up with a low pressure and it should make you feel better. It should, but... shouldn't it? <laughs> but then you've got the dark clouds and the rain and the strong winds just to... I'm a just to bring you back down to earth again. <laughs> I've got one. Uh, fog clearance. When does fog clear? Oh, yes. This is another good oh, sort of voice ballot so type rule, isn't it? Is yeah. Yeah. This is a, this, there's all sorts of caveats um, associated with yes. this one, isn't there? Mm. So if fog is going to clear... Um, in September, the ninth month, it will clear at nine o'clock. In October, the tenth month, it will clear at ten o'clock, and so on <laughs> until midday in December. Uh, mid, uh, yeah, midday in December. And then what happens in January? January. Then, <laughs> then, then you have to go backwards, and that's a lot of maths. Yes. So. <laughs> but it is a really handy just rule of thumb, it is. isn't it? It is. Yeah. And, the, and the other one is if you can see the sun or not. Oh, really? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you can. If you can see the sun through the fog. So that's shallow fog then. Could be. Oh, right. Could be. Okay. Or it could be that it's clearing, or, maybe. Not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah not necessarily. Um, then it means that I think it, it'll either clear within the hour or three hours. I can't remember which. Hmm. <laughs> One of the two. Which is not very good, is it? <laughs> so if you can see the sun or blue sky, it, it, it will clear. If yeah. you can't see the sun or blue sky, then it might not clear. Yeah, so uh, we have colour states, don't we, that um, uh, in, on the military. Fields, in the military, yeah, 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 that describe this. And I remember somebody I knew once uh, got a phone call from the, an RAF person and said, when can we go flying? And he replied with, can you see the hangar? <laughs> 
And the guy said, no. He said, when you can see the hangar, you can go flying. Which is not the customer service we... um... I've got another fog fact. Um, Some people capture fog um, to get the water from it. So this is uh, areas where it's particularly dry. And the one I'm thinking of is the Atacama Desert in South America. And what they do is they, um, they, they set up a mesh, like in a frame, only by a meter by a meter, but several of these. And as the fog drifts through, because they don't get rain from anywhere else because of the, you know, just the situation they're in, um, the, the mesh actually helps to, uh, to coalesce all the raindrops and then that falls down and they capture it and that's how they can produce water from fog. So they have mm. fog capturing devices. How lovely. Very clever. Yeah. I wonder if they borrowed that idea from the cacti because it's just in those, those, the plants in those Real, situations right, of course, yes. depend on exactly the same thing. They depend on the water landing, well, the fog essentially um, collecting on the on the spines and so they and have those hairs, don't yes. they oh is that where it came from i, I don't know but maybe you know, it's logical perhaps you might borrow oh. it from nature we've borrowed so much from nature they yeah. should have copyrighted it <laughs> any more last minute facts so i've got one about uh, observations now now this really is quite niche but but those of us in the met office know that we take our our daily observations which are used for sort of climatology at nine o'clock in the morning and it's never occurred to me to question why we do that um, because it would kind of make more sense to maybe do it either at midnight or midday and apparently and I can't find I can't corroborate this or find any evidence but I've been told that the reason is in the very early days of weather observations a lot of them were taken by lighthouse keepers Mm. um, and they just said they were too busy at midnight I'm sure they had lots to do to keep things going Um, I would imagine trying to do an observation with a lighthouse is quite difficult because you'd be like right what's it look like oh no can we could That's we just a very good point. Maybe doing it in the daylight makes much more sense. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's probably right, isn't it? That um, it was a time that was you were always going to be in the daylight. Mm. Yeah. Because the other thing I thought was people working at night time, you're not going to be doing that so much, are you? And yeah. um, the chief meteorologist gives a briefing at what time every morning? Five, five past, past nine. And nobody questions why it's five past nine no. until they come in from outside and say, why five past <laughs> nine? And all we can say is, it's as good as any other time, really. <laughs> because it is. <laughs> because it is, yes. And that's it for this episode of Mostly Weather Random Facts. Our thanks to Helen Roberts, Catherine Ross and Penny Tranter. I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown and this podcast is produced by us, the Mostly Weather podcast team. The series producer is Claire Nazir and our editor is Simon Hammett. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.